Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am O'Brien McMahon, and this is People Business. Every business is in some way a people business. From Silicon Valley to the restaurant down the street, every business relies on groups of people working together toward a common cause. That's no easy task. While the world around us has evolved into a high-tech, interdependent matrix, our individual software is largely the same as it was 10,000 years ago. We are social, emotional animals balancing a need to fit in with a desire to stand out. Bring us together in large groups, put money on the line, and anything could happen. This is a show where current and aspiring business leaders can understand the people dynamics at play in their organizations and learn skills and techniques to improve their chances of long-term business success. This week, my guest is Mike Sorelli, CEO of Echelon Front Overwatch. Mike is a retired U.S. Navy SEAL officer, a graduate of the University of Texas Macomb Business School, and now a leadership instructor, speaker, and strategic advisor for Echelon Front. Mike served 15 years as an officer in the SEAL teams and five years in the U.S. Marine Corps as an enlisted recon marine and scout sniper. Mike served in SEAL Team 3 Task Unit Bruiser alongside extreme ownership authors Jocko Willink and Leif Babin, where he led major combat operations that played a pivotal role in the Battle of Ramadi in 2006. Mike assumed duties as the primary leadership instructor for all officers graduating from the SEAL training pipeline, taking over that role from Leif Babin. Mike was then selected for assignment to the Joint Special Operations Command, where he completed multiple combat deployments. Mike is the recipient of the Silver Star, six Bronze Stars, two Defense Meritorious Service Medals, and a Purple Heart. In his current role, Mike leads Echelon Front Overwatch, a company that specializes in recruiting, training, and placement of U.S. Special Operations Forces veterans with companies seeking leaders with an extreme ownership mindset to build their ranks and dominate on their battlefields. Mike brings incredible combat leadership experience and business acumen to the Echelon Front team, as well as unique insight and expertise on veteran transition and education programs. This was a masterclass in leadership uh, from Mike. He is absolutely an expert in all things leadership and military transition. Whether you are a current leader or an aspiring leader, there is a ton that you could take away from this. And going back through it myself, I have about four and a half pages of notes uh, and plenty of action steps uh, that I put in place within 24 hours of this conversation. So I'm really excited to share this. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Mike Sorelli. We will go live then in three, two, one, and we are live with Mike Sorelli from uh, Echelon Front Overwatch. Mike, how are you doing today? Hey, O'Brien, I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. I, uh, I appreciate you coming. It's an honor to meet you. And uh, I have a natural interest in a lot of the topics we're going to talk about anyway, and can't wait to get your perspective on some of this stuff. So. You are the CEO of Echelon Front Overwatch. And I think Echelon Front has gained some popularity out there with, with Jocko's fame and his podcast and the success of his books and that kind of stuff. But Overwatch is a little bit different. How do you fit in? And, and I would love just to start off with you describing what Echelon Front Overwatch is. Yeah, absolutely. So Leif Babin and, uh, and Jocko did a great job with extreme ownership and that thing spread like wildfire without any real public relations uh, behind it. Uh, the book speaks for itself and that's why it's still a uh, top-selling uh, business leadership book. 
Echelon Front, the company that was formed out of that book, is a leadership consultancy. And so that's, that's they, they come into companies, they help them create a leadership foundation and help them how to lead their people and win. What EF Overwatch uh, provides is we are really an executive search and talent advisory. So we really, from high-level placements, board of directors to C-suite, uh, down to about general manager, director level. We're, we're talking high-performing veterans who have been proven within any uh, occupational specialty in the military, uh, but have a track record for strong leadership and driving results. So that's where the two companies sort of uh, reinforce one another. One, we can help you lead your teams, and then we can also actually help you build your teams with the physical talent as well. And how did you come up with that idea? How did, how did that business originate? On the back of a napkin in a uh, Mexican restaurant. The way uh, all it, good businesses start. Yeah. So, no, uh, you know, Leif, Jocko retired uh, a few years before I did. Leif got out a few years before I did. They were already uh, in the game. Um, and they kept telling me to come on board the Echelon Front team. And, uh, you know, I was eager to do it. And I said, hey, I really want to stand up a talent acquisition firm. And I had uh, stood up a nonprofit called the Vetted Foundation with the help of gentlemen like Admiral uh, Bobby Inman, Admiral William McRaven, General Tony Cucolo. And that was a program that basically created an MBA light, uh, as you will, about one month to two months of business acumen for high-performing veterans that just are missing that small piece. Uh, and it was wildly successful in the first cohort we built, but ultimately, um, we did not get the, the the certification for VA funding, and it would have been uh, very it would have been a very tall uh, building to leap to fund that program for for lots of vets. Learned a lot from that failure, uh, and it wasn't totally a failure. We we affected twenty five uh, lives in, in a positive manner, uh, but learned a lot, and then basically took that to the for profit realm, and that's where Jocko Leif and I partnered up to create EF Overwatch, uh, which is truly a different source of exceptional leaders that are constantly overlooked by the private sector. So you're placing mostly special operations folks, combat aviation, high performing operators, correct? We are. Um, again, we are open to any uh, military members. Really traditionally what we place is very senior enlisted uh, military leaders and um, we place uh, officers as well. It, it comes down to the fact that they're high performing and they have the ability to leap from one domain to the other. And what we've found, O'Brien, what, what has been proven is that, uh, you know, industry experience is the least important thing when you evaluate people. In fact, Google did a study. What makes our most successful manager successful? And what they found was that industry experience or technical ability was actually the least important thing. So, uh, these veterans have proven successful in the military in some of the most chaotic, ambiguous environments in the world. Uh, making that leap into, uh, you know, general management positions or higher uh, is not a stretch. Um, but at the end of the day, we're very uh, selective in who we allow into our talent pool, as well as we are selective with clients we take. We, we, we have to make sure that the, the companies that we uh, partner up with to place veterans into understand and put a premium on leadership over industry experience, and to date, our results uh, speak for themselves. I would imagine there's probably two forces. In, in my head, I could see two forces that you would have to deal with. One being that 
people don't really understand how somebody from the military skill is going to translate into what they're doing for, for work. The other is, I mean, there's definitely a, a cachet and sexiness right now around any type of military leadership and special operations. And so I, I could imagine you'd get a lot of people who maybe don't have the best intentions or maybe they don't have bad intentions, but maybe they're, they just like the idea of having somebody like that on their team and they're not, they don't have those leadership principles there. How do you do that vetting so that you help companies understand the value that's really coming in and make sure that they're really serious and the people that you're placing can really be effective? You, you know correct me if I'm wrong on either of those perceptions. No, 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 it is. It's, um, you know what, we don't have to convince the clients that come to us that understand the value of leadership. As, as Jocko and Leif say in extreme ownership, leadership is the solution to all your problems. Your company is only as good as the talent you put onto the field to, to drive results. And, and so uh, high-performing individuals recognize high-performing individuals, or, or another way to say that is A players select A players. If a company comes to us and I have to convince them of the value that a Navy SEAL uh, commander or a, you know, let's say a Sergeant Major from the Green Berets, if I have to convince them on the value that they bring to organizations, then sometimes it's not a good fit. Maybe that's a lack of my sales uh, ability uh, as well. So it's one or the other. But, um, you know, we've constantly had clients that are right on that fringe. They, they really need a strong leader to come in and help them uh, uh, lead the team yet they can't get over the fact that some of these guys don't have industry, industry experience. And, and let me be, uh, let me set the record straight, Brian. We actually do have a lot of our talent pool that already has significant, significant private sector experience. Some of them are already senior VPs in companies. Um, but those that were on the fringe, when we put at least three candidates in front of them, the feedback we get is these guys are amazing or these women are amazing. And really, uh, you know, our, our talent speaks for uh, speaks for itself. It, it comes down to, uh, you know, overlooking that industry experience, which again, uh, as I said, is is the least important thing. Uh, the learning agility of our candidates is through the roof. These are men and women that we, uh, on one deployment, put in Afghanistan, all of a sudden have to switch to a completely different location uh, in the world, a different culture, and all of a sudden they end up in East Africa in, in an even more chaotic situation. So. Uh, they, these, these leaders that come out of the military are such great general managers because great general managers draw from a very broad range of experience. And that is a strength because it means they can solve a lot of problems by somebody that is so specialized or so technical in one niche. And that's where, and you've probably seen it, I think there's an over-specialization of talent in the, uh, the workforce. Is there any hard element to that transition? Like, is there, is there any struggle, especially if they're coming from straight from the military to a for-profit civilian job? Is there any hurdle there that, that you're seeing them have to overcome? You know, I can speak from my experience. The, the, the transition is not fun. There's no way to sugarcoat that. It's, uh, you're moving from such a team-oriented uh, tribe almost into uh, back reintegrating back into uh, into civilian life, and that is not easy. But I will tell you the emotional intelligence and the maturity uh, and resiliency of our veterans 
um, the, 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 the right ones, uh, handle that transition with grace and segue into very successful uh, careers. Uh, but again, that is a testament to their emotional intelligence and just their overall uh, strength. And now, my understanding is that you at one point ran the training for SEAL officers that came through BUDS. Is that correct? Yes. So uh, Leif Babin, again, the co-author of Extreme Ownership, was the director of what we call the Junior Officer Training Course. And so Leif and I had deployed to Ramadi and Taskina Bruiser. We, we've known each other for a long time. And I came uh, behind him to take over that, that position. You know, funny enough, when I got selected to do that, I was pissed. I was pissed because <laughs> in my eyes, uh, good SEALs want to be on the battlefield. Sure. And I was told I was coming off the battlefield. And, I, you know, compared to my peer group, I had more combat experience than about 99% of them. And I couldn't understand that. My ego took it as a slight. And basically, you know, it fell on deaf ears at the time. It took me a few years to understand it. But a senior leader said, hey, Mike, we're not, you know, uh, questioning your ability on the battlefield. But if you can train 10 young SEALs to be as good as you, then that has an exponential effect. And again, hard for a 27, 28-year-old to swallow. Uh, but I went forward and started doing that. And I'll tell you, these young 21, 22-year-old uh, SEAL officers were hungry, hungry for knowledge, hungry to get on the battlefield. And what is really rewarding is to this date, I get emails from them. Some of them now, the executive officers and SEAL teams, some of the commanding officers uh, thanking me for when they were a brand new ensign which is the first rank as an officer in the, uh, the Navy, uh, thanking me for, for, for what I taught them back then. Um, and quite frankly, you know, most of them were better than I ever was. And, and I'm, I'm absolutely good with saying that. It's a begrudgingly rewarding experience. Yes, that's a great way. To, I'm going to have to steal that, Brian. Yeah, Thank you. Great. <laughs> uh, so, I, so much of what's out there and popularized around SEAL training is around BUDS. But I... It seems like the more impactful training, especially for the officers, would be the actual training once you get through that, and it would be things like that leadership training that, that you ran. And so I, could you just walk through like what goes into that training? What are the skills that these people are learning from the beginning, and, and how does the special operations community think about those skills? That, that is a, a great question. So you, let, me, let me back up. You know, if the special operations community, much like the private sector, hired for industry experience, guess what? <laughs> we would not have a special operations force. Nobody comes out of high school or college saying, hey, yeah, I've, I, I've served in the French Foreign Legion for five years, uh, ready to go. It doesn't happen. So by nature of the talent pool that we draw from, uh, we have to screen for characteristics and attributes. What are the attributes that make up a high performer? And that's what we look for. So the special operations community as a whole really believes in something called the whole man concept. That is the physical, uh, emotional, and mental component. And that's what every business should screen for. Um, it's a powerful concept. And this is a Navy SEAL uh, giving credit. The Green Berets, Army Special Forces, were well ahead of every other service uh, in evaluating their process for how they assess and select people into the community. And, you know, each community has a list of attributes they look for. And they all look, they're all looking for ice cream. 
we'll put it to you that way. It's just slightly different flavors uh, amongst the operators that they select into the community. So the training is not meant to see how many push-ups you can do. We're not selecting marathon runners. We're not uh, selecting, uh, you know, bodybuilders or professional boxers. Once you prove the physical component, we call them gates. We close that gate. That's no longer the, the, the data coming out of, uh, out of that is no longer of value. So, you know, a lot of the training for special operations is really uh, intended to see if these people have these attributes. And it's really interesting as you, you go back and actually watch it as an instructor and understand the methodology. Um, but BUDS, we'll, we'll take a look at that, is really intended to, to knock people down and to see how they react. Nobody goes through BUDS and says, yep, passed everything the first time, total winner, I'm good to go. No, everyone at one point uh, gets knocked down. And for a lot of high-performing individuals that have always had you know, I'm not saying they haven't worked hard, but maybe things were always uh, easier for them. Maybe they had athletic ability. Maybe, maybe they were uh, off the charts intelligent. Um, they are pushed down for some of the for some of them first time in their lives, and they don't react well when they're knocked down multiple times. And so you see, we've had Olympic swimmers, we've had NCAA athletes, we've had Ivy League uh, educated uh, investment bankers all drop out of training, and that's really the interesting component. Um, and there's some people that never played team sports in their lives that, that make it through the, uh, the training. So uh, it's all rewarding. And then ultimately, um, when they get into something along the lines of the more professional technical training, we're looking for a curiosity. And, and you know, I had a conversation with Tracy Koch, who's the CHRO of HP, uh, a phenomenal business leader. You know, she talks about how she looks for curiosity about how the most amazing people in HP are 30 years in the seat or 20 years in the seat and they still have a hunger for knowledge and how things work. We're also looking for humility. Humility is key that you recognize you are never the smartest man or woman in the room, that you can actually have the strength to raise your hand and say, you know what, I'm really screwing this up, I'm having a tough time over here, guys. I can really use some help. Uh, intelligence is always a gate. We have standards to get into the special operations community that everyone has to meet. Um, but intelligence is not so much what is your IQ score, it's can you effectively apply it to solve problems. We have some very smart people that come into the SEAL teams um, that are smarter than everyone in the room, uh, technically on paper, but they, they have this inability to keep things simple or, or to apply knowledge and sometimes they suffer from paralysis through analysis and they do not make uh, great seals and they wouldn't you know quite frankly probably make great business leaders as well and i think that that tends to uh to, to be the uh, the result but um the misnomer that the public has is that we just put these guys through hell and, and it's designed to see who can actually endure it yeah emotional well, and, strength and that you're creating robots that it's just you know people who follow orders and you know there's a job and they do it and they can't free think on their own that's just one that I know I've, I've listened to some of Jocko's podcasts and I know that he's addressed that quite a bit. Um, you know, especially from a leadership standpoint that these are all people who've had to, to think on their feet and adapt through their whole career. These people are the farthest thing from, uh, from robots. And actually it's the strength of our, our military. It's the, uh, the strength of our nation because they saw very asymmetric challenges in pretty much every continent during the global war on terror. 
and they had to solve those problems. But you, you know why people believe that is from what they see in the movies. Hollywood, you know, does not depict the military well, but guess what? Hollywood is also the greatest recruiting tool for the military. You know, I eventually joined the military because I saw movies like uh, Heartbreak Ridge or, or Navy Seals or The Rock or Black, you know, Black Hawk Down. And you think, wow, I want to be a part of a team like that. So um, Hollywood does a good job of filling the funnel, but they also do a poor job of truly articulating who these young uh, men and women are, these, these phenomenal leaders um, that are not robots. And quite frankly, you come lead a... Uh, ODA of Green Berets or a troop of, uh, of SEALs, you'll see that they have egos, that they're A-type personalities, that if you tell them to do something that does not make sense, they will absolutely push back on you. And most of the time when I made bad decisions, my people pushed back and they were absolutely correct and we identified another way to solve those problems. You mentioned the years of experience thing in the corporate world. And I mean, that's a big hang up and people who have no military experience complain about that all the time. It, it seems to me like training is overemphasized in the military more than any other area. Like no matter what your job is, whether you're special operations or, or anything else in the military, you're getting a tremendous amount of training. And in the corporate world, you know, that's always one of those struggles is, well, what's the training budget going to be? And when you hit hard times, like a global pandemic, training budgets, one that gets cut early. It, what to you, like, what's the value of training? How do you think about training? And what do you think about the training that you see in corporate America? So Brian, you, I'm, I'm rummaging through the book as you're asking these questions. And there was actually a section here and I'll read it to you. Mike spent 240 months in the military to reach retirement. It's 240 months is 20 years. 195 of those months were spent training for the 45 months he spent in combat. 45 months in combat. Uh, I actually had 10 combat deployments. Uh, that is over that is over 80% of my career uh, training. So does that mean for the 45 months that I was in combat that we weren't training? No. We were training every day, every opportunity that we had. What I think the business world gets wrong is that they have to create these elaborate programs, they have to budget for them, and that's how they train their people. No, the greatest training your people will ever get is from the direct superiors that they work with daily. And, and there's small techniques from, you know, an evaluation process and providing feedback, which people cannot improve if you're not providing feedback. And, and other techniques that you can do daily, like an after action process. In the military, we pull our people in after every training evolution, after everything we do, and we ask the question, what, did, what was the plan? Was the plan executed? What went right? And more importantly, what, what went wrong? What did we learn from it? How do we fix it going forward? And I come into businesses because uh, I'm a leadership instructor too with Echelon Front, and people usually say, hey, Mike, that's great in the military. doesn't work in the private sector. We don't have the time. And it's my aha moment. It, I say, aha. Um, actually, what your language is telling me is that it's not a priority to train and, to develop, and develop your people. That's, that's what you're truly say, uh, telling yeah. me. And what I tell them is I tell them the story of, you know, going out and conducting nightly raids in Afghanistan where we would leave at 11 uh, p.m. and return sometimes at 5 a.m., 6 a.m., 7 a.m. in the morning, having uh, hiked in the mountains to a target, gotten in a, a, an hour-long gunfight. We get back at 6 a.m. in the morning. We're exhausted. And what do you think we do? We sit down, no matter how tired or hungry, hungry we are, 
and we would debrief that mission, which sometimes would take 30 minutes all the way to two hours because we knew that was the process through which we develop and train one another, learning from each other's successes and strengths and everyone uh, benefit from it. So I would say to the business world, stop thinking that uh, training is pulling people offline uh, for a week at a time to, 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 you know, to, to work with some consultancy group on, on leadership. No, the best uh, training takes place on a daily basis from the mentors and the coaches uh, within your company. Well, and that makes me think, so I'm involved with a, a nonprofit here in Chicago uh, that's based on experiential education. So takes kids out, uh, exposes them to things they wouldn't be exposed to otherwise. And through that have gotten into some studies that have come out and really the benefit of experiential education. And it, from everything I've read about the military, that that's most of the training that you're getting is on the job, experience-based. This went right. This didn't go right. Let's run it again. And it seems like most of the training that's going on in corporate America is, hey, let's go sit in a classroom. Let me talk at you and tell you how to do this, give you some principles to apply, and then you go off on your own. How do you think about experiential education and making it real for people? It, it, so I'll put it to you this way, O'Brien, and I'm not going to kid anyone. I'm a pretty disciplined dude. I think I've, I've proven that over the last 20, 22 years. Um, but you put me in a classroom for eight hours of leadership education, and I'm struggling to stay awake. Uh, the experiential, that is where the true value comes. So um, let's look at it this way. In the military, we have a, uh, an adage that get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Um, and again, it's not to make anyone's life a living hell. It's the realization that true learning takes place at one's thresholds, at, at one's limits. That's where the true learning takes place is you have to put people into stressful scenarios. Uh, you have to apply pressure in order for them to truly learn. And that's where the experiential side comes into, uh, uh, comes into place. The other additional uh, thing about that, and again, going back to special operations training, is why do we push them to their limits? Because that's where also one's true character is revealed. And um, if you want to truly develop a um, impactful uh, training program for your company, you've got to create a program that is experiential and pushes people to a healthy uh, threshold. Uh, you know, so you know we're not we're not intended to uh, to put anyone in a uh, precarious situation. Um, but yeah, that's when I'm uncomfortable, I know I'm, uh, I'm learning. How do you hold somebody in that uncomfortable position? Because that's another thing in the corporate world is, you know, we want our cultures, we want to feel like families, we want it to be a place where everyone feels good. And sometimes the we think we're being kind to people by maybe letting them off the hook, when really, we're doing them a disservice. And we need to be letting them sit with that uncomfortable feeling. There was a, a book that I read where somebody said, you know, your, your ability to be a leader hinges on your willingness for somebody else to be uncomfortable. So, you know, funny enough, this morning as we came in, um, my operations manager is on PTO. So without any uh, forewarning, we looked at our marketing manager and said, you have the sync meeting uh, this morning. And you could tell, I was like, uh, you know, what do I do? We, that, that is a perfect example where we, we put him on the spot, help him feel that stress. And guess what? He persevered through it. He pushed through it. And I know that that seems like a minor uh, example, 
but that's where uh, that's the sort of thing that you, you can set up within your own respective companies is all of a sudden you put somebody on the, pot, the, the spot, but also, you know, again, it goes back to this misnomer uh, about the military is that we're yelling at people all the time. We're, we're not saying that. We, we, we all have smiles on our face when we're putting other people in uncomfortable scenarios because we know we're doing it to develop them and they understand that as well. And I think if you explain that to your subordinate leaders before you start any training programs, hey, we're going to put you into these stressful scenarios. We want you guys to have fun with it, but the intent is to apply a little pressure so that the learning curve uh, increases and that you develop as a leader within this company. So it's about how you, how you ultimately approach it. But um, there, there's a great, great quote from uh, Leadership Strategies and Tactics, which is Jocko's, uh, one of his newest books. And I'm just going to quote it real quick. Everyone will have to work outside their natural comfort zones from time to time. And they should also be placed outside their comfort zones to become better in their areas of weakness. It is the role of the leader to ensure that this happens in a measured and controlled way. And even in the military, when we design these elaborate scenarios that uh, we put all, our, our SEAL operators, Green Berets, into, um, it, is, it is controlled. And we mitigate the risk to, to the highest level that we, uh, we can, and we have fun with it. This might be a good time just to talk about the concept of extreme ownership, too, because that seems like a lot of work for everybody to be doing who's leading one person. And you get somebody who might have one or two direct reports, and they like working with that person, but they don't think of themselves necessarily as a leader. And I would just be curious on your philosophy around where does this training come from? Whose responsibility is it? I, I think I could probably know the answer because I've read Extreme Ownership two or three times, but how, how do you think about the role that more of the rank and file people play in creating this culture as well as just the one leader up top? At the end of the day, it's those rank and file people that drive the vision and the strategy of the company forward. And you have to, you have to reinforce that every single one of them right down to the brand new 19-year-old SEAL or the 19-year-old frontline employee, that they are leaders within this respective organization. It's much like the, the talent mindset you've heard about. Everyone is always recruiting for the company. Everyone is looking for the next generation of talent. Everyone is a recruiter in that company. Everyone is a leader within that company. And so even if you're in charge of no one, you have zero direct reports, and a lot of SEALs have zero direct reports. They uh, they have their roles and responsibilities. What we teach them is that they need to own their roles and responsibilities. They need to take extreme ownership uh, over those responsibilities. And they need to start learning the job of the person directly above them. Because at any moment, they could step up into a, leader, a position of leadership. The military is very good about uh, creating a command structure, not out of some sense of that that's what describes a disciplined organization, but because there's a purpose behind that, because at any moment on the battlefield, the leader could fall, much like in the business world. Something uh, you know, catastrophic can happen to one of your leaders. What's your succession plan? We have a succession plan from the top ranking officer all the way down to the lowest level enlisted guy who's brand new in the organization. Um, but training, leadership, and recruiting falls on all people of the organization, uh, regardless of your position. And once you start, you know, once you start honestly believing that within, within a company uh, and enforcing that, uh, the culture starts to change within organization and it becomes a lot more healthy and effective place. 
do you see leaders struggle with that? Giving up? I mean, cause that to me, that means checking your ego, giving up some of your control, air quotes control. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of humility that comes with that. There's some potential risk that comes with giving up some of that control or empowering your people in that way. Do you see that as a hurdle with a lot of the leadership consulting that you do? It is the hardest thing for any human to do is to exactly what you just said. And this is why people don't achieve decentralized command within their organizations. And you're doing the air quotes. I'm, I'm holding on to the microphone really uh, tightly. It's because we're all control freaks and you have to let go of control. In order to achieve decentralized command within any organization, you have to let go of some control. It's much like extreme ownership. In order to take extreme ownership over a situation, you actually have to give more extreme ownership away to your people. And when they start taking ownership to, to a greater extent, your extreme ownership over that situation or your command and control over that situation grows as well. Um, when we can't let go of control, what we're really saying is I don't trust the person below me to do the job as well as I have. And if those words come out of your mouth, what you need to be doing is looking in the mirror saying, okay, if I'm saying that, that means I have failed to train my people to a standard, to become as good as I am. I have failed to pass that knowledge down and prepare them to take leadership at any moment. And if you ever say those words, then you need to, again, going back to that training program, you need to start now. And you need to start training the next generation of leaders to take your position. That's always the goal is to train your team so well that you're no longer needed for the tactical decisions and you can focus at the bigger picture. How do you get them to start down that process? Where do you, where do you tell them to start? For, for leaders, it's pulling them in and saying, hey guys, take, I'm gonna take ownership over this, that I have failed each and every one of you because I've not put the requisite time into developing you guys to be the next generation uh, of leaders within this company. Um, this is human nature. Have you ever, and you've led uh, subordinate leaders before, you've, you've, you've had direct reports, you've run into a scenario where maybe a last minute task falls into your lap. And it's a, it's a perfect oppor- uh, training opportunity. Um, but it's late in the day, and you know you can get it done in one hour. Or it would take three hours to train your people to do that. And what do, you, what do, what do most humans do? 99% of humans say, hey guys, go home, I'll just take care of this. And you've robbed your people again, going back to training, of a valuable opportunity. And even though it takes three hours that night and you stay a little late, you've set yourself up for success for the long term. And you're going to save a lot more time. So de-risking things, the the, the greatest way to de-risk things is to, to start training your people the second they step in. We do that within our organization. So for EF Overwatch, you know, for, for a lot of our, our frontline recruiters, we hire out of uh, college. Kids don't have prior ex- uh, military experience, but we steep them in our culture. We, from day one, tell them that they are leaders within this organization that we expect. You know, here are the standards, your left and right lateral limits. Here are the decisions you, you can make. Here's the, the decisions you cannot make at this time, but that will, that, that, that rope will, will start to uh, stretch out. And the, uh, the, the results we see uh, in our people, the, the maturation within our people, I think is much more accelerated than most companies. It's funny that you uh, give that example of the last minute thing coming up because right before we jumped on here, I uh, got an email from somebody on my team and it was a draft that I was going to then approve before it was going to go out to a prospective client. And I was like, oh, well, it's good, but you know, I can just edit it and make it shorter. And then I caught myself and was like, no, I should probably give the feedback, have them edit it and come back to me. And 
I was, I was like wrestling with that in my own head right before we jumped on this. Hey, O'Brien, you, you brought up a great point. It's like, but the leaders are, you know, they, they, they say to themselves, but if I do that, if I let go of control, I empower my people to make decisions, mistakes are going to be made. Yeah. Yeah. Mistakes are going to be made even if you don't let go of control. It, it, and if you help your people learn from those mistakes, again, you develop them at a faster rate. We wanted, and we, it, we, again, setting up very strenuous environments where we pushed our people to the edge. At times, we set them up to fail. Why? Because much like, like learning uh, takes place at one's limits, learning takes place at a greater rate when you fail because you're embarrassed. If I step onto the, the, the rifle range and I don't qualify as an expert uh, rifleman and my, my buddies are around me, I'm embarrassed. And what am I going to do? I'm going to go back to the, the, the rifle range the next week and I'm going to practice, practice, practice not until I get it right. And uh, it's that embarrassment that drives me to get better. Never let Failures, that happen again. <laughs> yeah, I am never going to let that happen again. Yeah. It is that failure that drives people to get better. Um, and again, much like the uh, amazing individuals who step into special operations training, they've never really confronted failure in their life before. And they confront it for the first time in that training environment with a lot of stress and they, they end up quitting. So that, that's why failure is part of the process. You have to accept that it is part of the process. And yes, as a leader, if I see the, the wheels about to fall off the bus and it's going to be catastrophic to the organization, I'm going to step in and prevent that from happening. Um, but uh, often we set our people up to fail in training to reinforce points. Just to play a little devil's advocate, right? Put myself in, in one of your obstinate clients' seats. Well, we're a business and we, you know, every deal is important and we need everything to work out. And so we don't have the, the time or ability to let those deals fail. You know, how am I supposed to train my people? How am I supposed to allow for failure in the system? You know what I do, uh, O'Brien, and, and because maybe it's the nature of our clients, when I step onto a client and, and I've got lead on that deal, I will tell my client, hey, listen, here's Noah Nunez. He's one of our brand new recruiters. Here's Will Sharman. Um, hey, Bob, so you're aware uh, I'm utilizing this deal to uh, help train them to get to the next level. And that client is like, oh, man, exactly what you guys preach. That's awesome. And they're 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 very lenient where I'm saying, I tell them, hey, uh, Will Sharman is going to take the lead on this phone call. I'm going to let him run it, run through it. If, if we start to, to go over time, I'll step in to, to close the deal. And the clients love it. And it, when you have clients that understand you're training your people and you're helping train theirs, it, it's, it's really good. Um, but if something is high level and we don't have time to mess around, yes, I'll, I'll step in and, um, and take care of it. And I will have my people next to me to observe. And then what we'll do afterwards is we will debrief. In fact, I'll have them debrief me. What did I do right? Or what did I do well? More importantly, where do you think I, I failed on that one, guys? Or what, what were the areas of weakness I could have done better? And how, how would you suggest I improve going forward? And so I've got a 23-year-old uh, who's never served in the military debriefing me and critiquing me on how to get better. That's the other thing. It's a two-way process. And uh, talk about being uncomfortable. I could just imagine yeah, I, what that would be like for that person to sit there and be like, this is my boss who's had 10 combat deployments and he's asking me to tell him how bad he is. Where do I go with this one? <laughs> they, they know at the end of the day, I'm a, a big teddy bear, but um, you know, it, when we had young seals, we'd want their, their after action points too. What do you have for us? We know you have zero combat deployments under your belt, zero deployments whatsoever. 
you're brand new to the SEAL teams. Where can I get better as a, as a leader? And, and, you know, the special operations community is just a life of humility. You get knocked down so often, your ego starts to erode. Um, and, and you just sort of laugh when you, you, uh, you mess something up, uh, knowing that you're going to get better. So uh, we, we set the tone within our organization that we, we, you have to have this ability to laugh at yourself. You have to. Um, you're human at the end of the day, and we all know that. I want to stay on the after action reports for a second. How nitpicky do you get with that? Oh, it's, it's, it's detailed. It, it's nitpicky because, you know, the risk within our profession is life and death. And so it, we're not perfection, perfectionists whatsoever. There, there's no such thing as perfection. It's the biggest fallacy in the world. Are we always striving for it? Yes, but we accept nothing less than excellence. And when you see some of these debriefs, they, they at times can get emotional and, and heated um, because people will identify weaknesses in other people, or as we say, call them out. Um, but even though some of those debriefs get uh, heated, literally five minutes later, later those people that uh, were, were calling one another out will be sharing a beer because they know at the root of it, they're trying to make each other better. Um, but even our successes, most people close a deal, it's successful. In the business world, they don't conduct a postmortem. Um, postmortem sort of implies what? Post-death, something yeah. went wrong. Yeah. We, even, we even debrief our successes. And, and I don't want to state certain operations, but I saw uh, certain operations that ended up on international news that were a wild success. And watched the guys that executed that come back and were so critical on themselves. Even though they were successful, they accomplished the mission, they looked like all-stars, and they were so critical. And even us as friends would be sitting to the side being like, hey, don't be so hard on yourself. But no, they said, hey, we accomplished the mission. We did what we set out to do. But how do we get better for the next time the president calls upon us? And so even for our successes, we were, we were brutal. It's like the, the next mission is going to be harder. So how do we level up for that Always. next mission? Always. Yeah. Who, who was ready for COVID? Who, who saw this coming? Yeah. Very few people. And those that, and it goes back, you know, working with uh, our clients on the extreme ownership side, echelon front, the clients that we had worked with for years prior to COVID uh, that truly believed, they've gotten past that paradigm, they truly believed in extreme ownership and the principles for what they stood for, uh, were able to execute upon those principles during chaotic times. And they were well prepared and they will come out of this even stronger. Now, clients that, that, that maybe hadn't made that leap had come back to us and they said, now we realize why leadership is so critical, not only during the good times, but the bad times. Yeah. Well, I mean, the one principle that stood out the most for me and has helped me keep my foot on the gas pedal is the default aggressive. Just when in doubt, take, take some action. Uh, and that's helped me keep my business going through this too. Yeah. It, it, you know, in a good point to that, Brian, I think you'll appreciate this is, you know, default aggressive. A lot of people thought, well, I got to make this bold decision. I got to be an asshole. It, <laughs> and hey, there, there is a time for bold decisions, don't get me wrong, but in a COVID environment, and Jocko did a great job of sort of summarizing this, is you don't always have to make these large, bold decisions. Based off the limited information we have, uh, and sometimes you only see 50% of the picture, as a leader within an organization, say, hey, guys, based off of what I'm hearing, based off of what we know, and I'm pointing in a certain direction. We're, we're going to move this direction as a company. We're going to make small iterative decisions because tomorrow the information may change and we may have to pivot 
in another direction. And if that happens, guess what? We'll start moving in that direction. So uh, instead of allocating all your resources in, a, in this bold decision in one direction, sometimes in a vacuum or, or chaotic situation, just make small iterative decisions, which uh, provide you the ability to, uh, to adjust. Yeah, and I think about it too, is just keep going. Just keep moving, make the next sales call, you know, create the next marketing piece that you're going to need when business does come back, you know, whatever it is, just keep going, keep doing something. Um, I was, uh, in, in doing prep for this, I was watching, uh, a lot of the Jocko stuff and went back through the book and I, I saw something where he said, uh, maybe it was on his uh, Instagram account the other day, he said, look, look for work, you know, just always be looking for something to do. So that, that he, you know, that comes from the, the military is that if, uh, if you're sitting at the corner, in a combat operation, you're holding security. Always look for work. Always look for a way for what we call to better your position, to give you more, your, yourself and your organization more options. So uh, again, it goes back to not resting on your laurels. You're always looking for work. You're always looking for a way to improve your position, whether in business or on the battlefield, which at the end of the day, uh, the, the physical battlefield of combat and the battlefield of business are the same exact thing want to flip over to the humility piece because you talked about the special operations community just being one big humility fest. What do you recommend people do to build humility outside of a military context? If life has not already humbled you, um, you're in a, you're, you're in a bad position. If you cannot become humble, you have this inability to check your ego. Your ego is massive. And you know, Dave Burke, who's one of the Echelon front instructors, just talked about setting small goals to check your ego, um, take small steps, um, is looking in the mirror and recognizing, one, that, that your people, if you lead a team of, uh, of two, ten, or, or more, the aggregate intelligence of all of them and their combined experience always far outweighs yours. When you try to act or talk like the smartest person in the room, you end up looking like the exact opposite. So it is, you know, you've got to take these small steps and it's different for different people. One way I found it is just shut your mouth and start listening to other people. People with massive egos usually step on other people as they're speaking. They won't listen. Uh, they're not uh, processing what is being said. And so you have to respect that everyone has a perspective. You don't have everything figured out and work together as a team. You know, often, uh, people think it's, you know, a one-way road as a leader is that you give guidance and they can't give it back up. But we learned that within the, 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 the SEAL community or any special operations community that everyone has their strengths and everyone has their weaknesses and iron sharpens iron. And so that's why it's a two-way street. A young SEAL with only one deployment can still make me a better SEAL leader with 10 deployments. That's great. I want to switch pivot a little bit because this is one thing I wanted to talk to you about. You know, you as a leadership consultant are, it seems like really teaching a framework of principles laid out in Jocko and Leif's book, Extreme Ownership, and, and you have a framework that you're helping people use. And it seems from what I know about the military that there's, there's a framework or there's standard operating procedures for just about everything. And they're always being refined. In the business world, there are thousands of books that come out all the time. There's a bunch of different leaders out speaking now with YouTube, with podcasts, with everything. You know, there's, there's a thousand different ways to look at a lot of this stuff. But it seems to me, and I've been thinking about this a lot lately, that 
it would behoove you to figure out which of the frameworks you believe in the most, which apply the most to what you're doing, and then to follow only a handful of those frameworks and follow them as disciplined as you can. How do you think about frameworks and keeping yourself disciplined so that you can be effective? You, you, Brian, you're hitting on a subject that I'm passionate about. Here's, in, in, it, it, I'm not praising Leif and Jocko because they're my, one, they're my bosses, and two, they're my, also my partners with the Overwatch, but what they did was exactly what you're describing. And they created a framework, or we could call it a leadership system that companies can adopt and make their own. If they want to change the nomenclature on cover and move to teamwork, that's great. But you have to choose a framework for your organization. And it needs to become a common language, a common vernacular. And if you have a foundation with a set of principles, guiding principles, code of conduct, um, core, core tenants, whatever you want to call them, now you have a language from which you can train and develop your people into better uh, leaders. But yes, you know, what a lot of companies do is they, they bring in speakers for what the, uh, the newest book is, what's the newest flavor of the month. All the books are, for the most part, saying 60% of the same thing. But none of them created a framework like extreme ownership. And that's what's powerful. Uh, even, you know, you look at the SEAL teams. The East Coast SEAL teams talk about leadership differently than the West Coast SEAL teams. Um, so what is extremely powerful is, is now that I've had an opportunity to look back on my career, I wish uh, we had created a greater framework that there was concurrence across the entire SEAL teams that these are the principles through which we operate. If you have too many principles um, or, or your principles aren't, uh, you know, widely uh, held, aren't a widely held belief within your organization that you really have nothing. How often do companies throw uh, flowery words that sound great or, or leadership principles on the wall, but I can step up in front of any employee and say, hey, what are the words uh, right behind your back? What are the words on the wall? They, they, they can't rattle them off. Uh, the clients we work with can tell us what the laws of combat are. They can tell us what the mindsets of victory are. And more uh, importantly, how to implement them. So if you have leadership principles, if there's no way to put them into action, then you really have nothing. How do you integrate new learnings into frameworks? Integrating new learnings, again, it goes back to humility is that, hey, things will, will adapt. You know, a great, a great example of that is the Army just updated, and, and I can't recall, we, we, they, it always has an nomenclature. They updated their leadership manual, and they added recently humility. This is a 200, and, um, I'm probably butchering it, 244-year-old institution known for producing some of the most prominent leaders in our nation, and they just uh, sort of added and reemphasized that humility is one of the key attributes of every, any leader. So, um, you know, we have updated our material. Even Jocko has refined how he views, uh, you know, certain principles within the laws of combat and how to apply them. So, um, it, again, it goes back to that realization that um, we're, we're not rigid, we're flexible, and environments change, and sometimes we have to adjust the way the principles are applied within those new environments. Well, that seems to be the reasoning behind uh, the dichotomy of leadership too, is that they realize there's a little clarification needed to some of that framework. And funny enough, you, you know, Leif's like, hey, that's on us. We, we clearly didn't execute upon the second law of combat simple. We did not uh, clearly, uh, you know, simply clearly, uh, you know, define what, uh, what these principles are and how to apply them. And yes, it's because people took certain principles to the extreme. 
and we all know when you take things to the extremes, that's unhealthy. So it, it really honed in on leadership is nuanced. It, it's not, it's not easy. Maintaining a balance is hard for any human being to do. So circling back, I, I appreciate that going down the leadership framework there and, and covering that topic, but I want to wrap back to Overwatch and what you're doing with some of these placements. How are you seeing your placements be able to step into organizations and apply this stuff? Like how quickly are they able to effectuate change and, and what type of roles are they stepping into where they're able to be most impactful? So they are stepping directly into leadership roles. Uh, some of them with industry experience, some with, uh, with none, but uh, I'm going to tell you, we've made placements where the CEOs of companies come back to us within one month and said, best hire I've ever made. And again, a lot, what scares a lot of companies is they think these veterans are going to come in, they're going to be too direct, and they're, 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 they're going to take uh, extreme ownership over the organization to include uh, stepping on the, the toes of, of the senior leaders, and that's not the case. Uh, if anything, veterans know how to work as a team. Um, but our placements have ranged from COO positions down to general managers in, uh, in storefronts, uh, sales, um, supply chain, um, really... Uh, again, it speaks to the volume of our selection process and the fact that we are very cautious and conscious of who we place into these companies because you make one bad placement and uh, you, you burnt that bridge usually. So you talked about frameworks uh, and we've talked about your business and what you're doing, but I know you have a book coming out that's going to help people with some of these uh, processes too. Uh, would you talk just a little bit about what you have coming out? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I wrote a book with uh, my co-author, a guy named George Randall, who was an Army Mustang. That means he served both as an enlisted guy and an officer in the Army back in the 80s, 90s. He's been in talent acquisition for over 20 years, um, and he's, he's an executive with a lot of experience. Um, so what we saw or what we see, again, it goes back to the fact that a lot of CEOs say that people are their number one priority. There was a recent poll in 2019 of 800 CEOs uh, polled. They said talent is their biggest concern, attracting and retaining uh, the right people. It's everyone's concern. And if you don't make it a strategic imperative, then you're setting your organization up for failure. People don't put, they, they just sort of view hiring as a tactical operation that happens. Uh, and they don't structure their companies to have a talent mindset. That, that's what this book, The Talent War, how special operations and great organizations win on talent. It's about organizations that understand people are the greatest strategic competitive advantage you will ever hope to achieve. And so not only do you have to hire the right, notice I'm not saying best, the right people in your organization, that's only part of the equation. The bigger part, what Jocko and they've hit on, is now you have to develop your people. So anyone you hire into a company, we, we label as a high potential. The young men and women that make it through BUDS or special uh, you know, forces training, MARSOC training, uh, anything else are high potential individuals. And if you don't develop and mature high potentials into high performers, you can spoil them as well by just ignoring them. Um, you, know, you look, special operations is very good. We're very cognizant of the fact that we put our very best in charge of what we call assessment and selection, um, the, the military's version of the hiring process because A players select A players. You have to be very cautious about who you put at the gate of your respective organization. 
you need people that are uh, business leaders. Your HR leader, your hiring manager, better be business leaders. If they're not, you're setting yourself up for success. Um, and lastly, I'll say, you know, we interviewed a lot of, uh, you know, prominent CEOs, CHROs, as well as military leaders. Uh, one of the things we saw too is that, you know, CHROs, hiring, uh, you know, managers or, or HR directors um, are often not viewed as uh, equals. And to give you an example, I think a CHRO makes three times, statistically, three times less than their C-suite counterparts, which by nature sort of shows you it's not a, uh, a strategic imperative. And how you structure your company to attract uh, and hire talent uh, speaks volumes. If your HR director or CHRO reports into legal, then it's a legal compliance. If it reports into uh, some sort of financial uh, you know, leader, then it is a overhead function. But if uh, your CHRO, your director of HR is in the hip pocket of that organization's leader, there's a chance, uh, you know, hope and hell that it becomes a strategic uh, uh, function for, uh, for your respectable organization, regardless of what you do. Well, thank you. And uh, I'm excited to read that. And I mean, that's the, that's the world that I play in too. So I'm out talking to CHROs, VPs of HR, and uh, have seen some of those dynamics play out. And, and even, you know, you get, you can get a, a great leader in there who's trying as hard as they can. And, yeah. you know, if the company, if the others around them are viewing them in a different light, they just, they're not able to be effective. Um, I actually know two people right now who are in transition who just were in situations like that and they, they weren't able to, to take it because they weren't able to create the impact that they wanted to. And we know that, and I'm sure they're taking that harshly is they feel like they're, they, they failed. Um, and sometimes in those situations where you're not empowered to affect change, I know that can be a, a hard pill to swallow. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, Mike, this is uh, fantastic. I really appreciate your time today. Uh, it's been an honor to talk to you and absorb some of the lessons that you have to share. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show and, and thank you for your service and what you've done for the country. Dude, Brian, thank you for having me, especially on the topic I know we're both passionate about. And uh, hopefully we can do it again. And uh, I will get you a copy uh, of, uh, of the book once it comes out September 8th. Um, I won't sign it. I'll have Jocko and Leif sign it. No, we all no, know no, no, the, no, uh, no, no. Stars are. no, 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 pre-publication we can do for the book. I'll put in the show notes and everything so people know where to find you. And uh, always want to remind people who are listening to this that uh, you do this professionally. So if your organization needs some help, definitely reach out and, and ask for it. These guys are here to help you. So absolutely. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Brian. Hey, folks, one last thing before you go. If you have a friend or colleague who you think would enjoy this episode, hit that little share button and send it their way. Also, if you like the episode, make sure to hit subscribe so you don't miss the next one. That's it. Thanks for coming. I'm O'Brien McMahon. Go make the most of your business and the people in it.